According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, we've taken a couple of Sundays now to uh, review the priesthood portion, and uh, that gets us through chapter 10. Today, I hope to cover the review for 11 and 12, and next week, chapter 13, uh, the final two uh, Hebrews review classes, then, uh, then we'll be ready for Genesis. Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. And this uh, introduces what's called the Hall of Fame of Faith, the chapter whereby we observe the pattern of Old Testament believers and how they live by grace through faith and uh, establish the pattern for us to follow in our dispensation. We have even more reason to walk by grace through faith because as church age believers, we have the, the Holy Spirit indwelling us and the fruit of the Spirit includes faith. So we are even more without excuse than any Old Testament saint was. The description here is marvelous, and uh, so I'm, uh, I'm eager to jump into it. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and commit our time for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the good pleasure of God the Father. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. And we call upon you and your faithfulness, Father, to remind us of what it was we studied in these lessons as we've already completed, essentially we've completed the entire series. But Father, as we review what we looked at in, in these chapters, remind us of these precious truths that we too might walk in faith because Father, without faith, it's impossible to please you. Uh, we want to please you. We're called to please you. That's why we're here and that's why we study. So Father, Bless our study and open our eyes. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so this is a one-hour snapshot of 32 hours. If you want the longer version of this, you've got to go to the website and get it. Classes number 103 through 134. Those were the, uh, those were the MP3s that you find there. Or some of them even, I'm not sure if we're into the video era at this point. At some point, we started doing videos when uh, we got kicked out of our building and uh, had to go to the remote uh, assembly routine. But the MP3s are number 103 through 134, and a total of 32 hours that you're going to get crammed into, uh, into one shot here today. And really I want to cover six main areas uh, in both chapter 11 and chapter 12, starting here with this issue of faith, because faith is everything. Faith is what theologians would call the sine qua non. And I don't usually throw around a lot of theological lingo or try to impress folks with Latin because I don't know Latin. But um, uh, Charles Ryrie introduced me to this expression when he was writing on dispensationalism. And he would write on what is the essence of dispensationalism. And that's what the phrase sine qua non speaks to. It means without which it is not. And so it's an essential ingredient. It is the core of any subject that you're studying. It's like peanut butter is the sine qua non of peanut butter cookies, okay? Because if you forget to put the peanut butter, and this, my, my Aunt Phyllis did this actually as a newlywed, um, famous family story here when, when Aunt Phyllis married Uncle Dick, that she was well known for her cooking, and Uncle Dick was very fond of her cooking, but the first time she tried to make him peanut butter cookies, they just didn't taste right. 
and there was just something wrong. But of course, Uncle Dick didn't want to say anything to his his bride, his newlywed. But you know, but it, just, it didn't taste that good. And uh, then finally, um, she went. And she saw the peanut butter on the counter that was supposed to be in the cookies, and it was still on the counter instead of in the cookies. And so they learned that that's why they didn't taste. They were the, the worst peanut butter cookies in the world. So peanut butter is the sine qua non of peanut butter cookies because without which it's not, okay? And so uh, when, when I was introduced to this theology, this term, it was Charles Ryrie writing about um, dispensationalism. And he speaks about the, the uh, sine qua non of dispensationalism is a clear distinction between Israel and the church. And that if you fail to distinguish between Israel and the church, then you have removed yourself from anything theologically that could be thought of as dispensational theology. He says that it's that literal hermeneutic that demands that we differentiate between Israel and the church is the sine qua non of dispensationalism. And I agree with, uh, with Ryrie on his, on his es- essential elements of dispensationalism. Now, faith, what the Bible says in this verse, faith is the sine qua non of our salvation because if you don't believe, you're not saved. I mean, without which you're not. So without faith, you're not saved. It is, it is, uh, it's, it's essential as an element of salvation. But it's also essential in our priestly worship. And that's what we glean in chapters 7 through 10 when we center on the priesthood and what we glean when we look at verses 11, uh, chapters 11 and 12 and we see the priestly ministry in action. Our priestly worship requires faith. And so in Hebrews 10.22, we notice, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So if you take faith out of that equation, forget about drawing near. Forget about entering within the veil. Forget about standing before the Shekinah glory of God the Father in the Holy of Holies. Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. And apart from this faith, we can't possibly stand before Him. So drawing near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. It is absolutely essential for priestly worship. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For He who comes to God... And you might remember this phrase, coming to God, is, it can be used in multiple ways. It can be used of salvation, right? The day you got saved, you came to God. So we can think of the salvation event as coming to God. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So when we say coming to God, we can think of that as an idiom uh, reflective of our, tra- of our salvation, that we pass from death into life, that we, that we uh, are delivered from the domain of darkness and are transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We're getting saved as we typically think of that. But it's not the only time we come to God. You know, every time we go in prayer, what are we saying? Dear Heavenly Father, we are coming to God. And there too, just like with our salvation, if you take faith out of it, it's not happening. Take faith out of our approach to God in prayer and we're not approaching God in prayer. Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Without faith, it's impossible to come to Him. And it's by faith that we operate within our position in Christ. Human effort does not function in the positional truth of in Christ. It's only by faith that that reality becomes our experiential realization. 
Obviously the salvation passages are well known, John 3.16. This part of the review will go quickly. That uh, whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? God so loved the world. We give this to the unbeliever. We say, look, God loves you. And unless you're a Calvinist where you have to say God might love you. But we say God loves you. And He sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins. That uh, He gave His only begotten Son. He gave that Son. That Son laid down His life so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. That's why faith is a sine qua non because without faith you're under judgment. You've been judged because He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then the last verse of the chapter in verse 36, John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Here it's remarkable how believing and disbelieving are phrased in terms of obedience and disobedience. Because God desires for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And when you don't obey the gospel, when you don't when you don't believe in Christ for eternal life, you are actually disobeying the will of God in, uh, in that respect. He who does not obey, is not persuaded, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And then very well known Ephesians 2.7. In the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And how is that going to happen? By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So faith is absolutely necessary for a salvation, but it doesn't stop at your salvation. We continue to walk by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is the core element of our priesthood. If we ever abandon faith, then we have stopped being the household of God as far as a functioning operational priesthood is concerned. And that, uh, that is so key. Now when we do, let's get back to Hebrews 11 now. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In large respect, our priesthood is an invisible priesthood. And uh, even though we're sitting here on Cross Park Drive in Austin, Texas, we are spiritually functioning in the heavenly places in Christ. And we are in the Holy of Holies. We are standing before the Father in Christ. And our earthly eyes can't see that. But by faith we accept that. By faith we function that way. It is the assurance of these things, the conviction of these things. And by it we're going to gain approval. We're going to obtain a testimony. The Father will testify that we are the faithful walking by faith. By faith we understand that the ages were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. This is the ex nihilo statement of creation, not only in the physical universe, but also the arrangement of the successive ages. Angels, humans, Gentiles, Jews, church, the whole program in the precise sequence that it needs to be in for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. We have the example of Abel, the example of Enoch, then we have the theological statement that's made in verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Understand, this is a mandate. It's always been a mandate. Israel was a, uh, was a nation called to please God. The Gentiles were called to please God. Before that the angels were called, called to please God. 
And in each of these stewardships, we see a, a rebellion, we see a failure, we see a fall of Satan who wants to please himself instead of pleasing God. We see a fall of Adam and Eve. We see failure, the failure of Israel again and again and again. Instead of pleasing God, they play the harlot and they uh, pursue idolatry with uh, the, the gods of the nations around them. And they provoke the one true God, they provoke to jealousy. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And now here we are in the church age. The same story, expected to please Him and to do so by faith, And uh, how well are we doing these days? When you look at Christendom in general, when you look at professing churches around the world today, how many are truly walking by faith and how many are pursuing the elementary principles of the world? How many have sold out to the world's vision of right and wrong, have sold out to an unbiblical pursuit in, uh, in different ways? He who comes to God Now, this is not just for salvation. This is coming to God in a priestly function. And you must believe, so it requires faith, that He is and that He becomes. God is and God becomes. And this is powerful. I could almost get lost right here on this point and spend the whole hour on this point. God is and God becomes. This is the privilege that we have in prayer because prayer changes things. Prayer has effects. Prayer is the stimulus which has the effect with God Himself to do what He does as a consequence of our prayers. All right? And this is, this is powerful. And because it touches on some things that makes people uncomfortable, they immediately re- react and say, oh, wait, what, what are you talking about here? So let me spell it out for you. And you have it in your notes. Thankfully, you have it in your notes that are already pre-printed and in your bulletin, so I can't get off track. And I can't chicken out and fail to teach this point because it's in there and you've, you're reading it. Because He is the eternal, unchanging I Am. God is. He's always been the I Am. The Father's always been the I Am. The Son has always been the I Am. The Holy Spirit has always been the I Am. Okay? But understand, we have a very profound reality that John chapter 1 teaches us. And if we accept John 1, then we shouldn't have a problem here in Hebrews 11. Because in John 1, you have an I am statement. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And you have the I am reality of God the Son who has eternally existed in His deity as God the Son in fellowship with the Father in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. But the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You're familiar with this? This is the the glory of the incarnation. What happened when the Word became flesh? The Word has always been the Word. But then the Word became something that it was not before. Ginnemai is to become something that you were not before. It is a transitive experience. It is an experience at a point of time whereby before and after, and after this experience you now are, but you are because you became. And before this experience you were not because you had not yet become what you became. Right? And so the Word became flesh. Before the virgin conceived and gave birth uh, to Jesus in the manger, The Word was never flesh. 
It was the, the virgin birth is what was the mechanism, the event for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so God the Son, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, be, we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. All right? And this is the difference between Amy and Genemai. The difference between I am and I became. And it's profound, theologically speaking, that the Word became flesh, that He took upon Himself a human body. Didn't diminish His deity. Didn't mean He stopped being God. Kenosis doesn't mean that He stops being God. He's still undiminished deity because deity is immutable, can't change. The I am, He's still the Word even after He becomes flesh. So all of the I am statements are still I am statements. And the become statement is what we focus on when a scripture text takes us there, such as the Word became flesh. And so the fleshly ministry of Jesus Christ, described as the days of His flesh, when He walked the earth, when He put up with twelve knuckleheads, when He went to the cross and died for our sins, okay? The days of His flesh. The Word became. Now that same language is what we have here in Hebrews 11.6. And it is so extraordinary because you have an is and a become. Without faith it is impossible to please Him for he who comes to God must believe that He is. That's the state of being. That's the eternal I am. The eternal, unchanging, immutable, glorious, righteous, awesome God that we stand before. He is. Okay? Remember, Moses approached the I am and he said, take off your shoes, Moses, this is holy ground. And and he learns the significance of I am. Go tell Israel, I am has sent you. And, And when you read about Moses approaching the I am and learning the theological significance for Yahweh, uh, as being the existent one, the I am. And um, that, that reality is here, that we, we do stand before the I am in our priesthood. We are standing before the eternally existent one. He who believes must believe that, he who comes to God must believe that he is. That's a profound statement of not just his existence, okay? I mean, you realize how banal this becomes, how, how simplistic that if you're going to pray, you can't be an atheist? Okay, well, yeah. Okay, so if you're going to pray, if you're going to function in a, in a priest, in a Melchizedek priesthood in Christ, standing before the Father, believing in God's existence is kind of a no-brainer. That goes without saying. It's deeper than that. It is the acknowledgement that we are invited into the eternal the immediate presence of the eternally existing one. And not only that, as if that's not enough, as we do so, He becomes something. He becomes something. Just as much as the Word became flesh. Because we have the ginnamai becoming here. He becomes a rewarder, a paybacker of those who seek Him. He becomes a paybacker of those who seek Him. So the eternal unchanging I am, He genomai becomes a reward paybacker. Now this is just as profound 
as the word becoming flesh. Because until the virgin gives birth, the word is not yet flesh. Until we go to the Father in prayer, God is not yet the paybacker. He becomes the paybacker or the rewarder. Do you like reward instead of payback? Either way, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But the reward is a, is a recompense. It's a payback. It's a sanctified, holy payback, not the kind of carnal payback you get at work. Okay, it's a sanctified, holy, righteous payback. And he is the sanctified, righteous, holy paybacker. But he becomes the, the rewarder. He becomes the rewarder as we come to him. And that's profound. Every time we ask, every time we seek, every time we knock, he becomes. All right. And so this, uh, this becomes significant. Matthew 6, 4. So if I don't go to him in prayer, he, he does not yet become the paybacker. He is not yet the rewarder. And if you ever wonder why the reward seems to be diminished, ask yourself, are you going, are you turning God into the paybacker? Are you standing in his presence? How frequently do you stand in his glory? Because it's coming to him that sparks this ginamai verb, becoming the ginamai, becoming the reward paybacker. All right, we were in Matthew 6 uh, last week when we were talked about not boasting and not when you're fasting and when you're giving and, and when you're praying, your father who's in season secret will repay you. But it says your giving must be in secret. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. If you want to turn God into a paybacker, do it with the right motivation. Do it by faith. Your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will pay back you, will reward you. This is the payback. Verse 6, with prayer. When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will repay you. Okay? Notice these verses don't have the, the, the noun faith in there, but it's understood. And in context, I have no issues tying this with, with Hebrews 11. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. When you give in secret, when you pray in secret, when you fast in secret, you're doing so on a faith basis and it's pleasing to God. When you're public about it and showing off, that's not a faith basis. And so God is not pleased. Likewise, verse 18, you're fasting. If you're fasting to be noticed by men, then your father uh, uh, who sees in secret, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, by faith. Faith is what's rewardable. Matthew 16, 27. Payback is a feature of second advent, by the way. Did you know that? Um, payback that's delayed, that's delayed, that's delayed because uh, God is merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Payback does eventually happen. And it's his wrath at the second advent. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with all His angels and then will pay back, repay every man according to His deeds. But right now God is merciful. Right now God is slow. He's patient as some count slowness, wishing for none to perish but for all to come to repentance. We live in the age of grace, but this age is not eternal. This age could end today if that trumpet sounds. Payback. 
Revelation 22.12 Behold, I am coming quickly, my payback is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. The verb is apodidomy, to give, to give back. Apo has a back, a return emphasis. Didomy is a verb to give. And maybe I should stop using payback only because it's so commonly negative and carnal in our world that uh, you know, your coworkers and your supervisors and everybody that you're dealing with in the world, the whole idea of payback is a very dark, ugly, carnal thing. Returning evil for evil, that's, Scripture tells us don't do that. Don't even talk about doing that. Proverbs says don't even talk about doing that, much less doing it. Don't even talk about doing it. But God does. God is the holy, sanctified, righteous paybacker. And He becomes the paybacker when we go to Him in prayer. You must believe that He is and that He becomes a rewarder of everyone who seeks Him. Remember, every time we ask, seek, and knock, Matthew chapter 7, I love these verbs. Ask, seek, and knock. You know, these are verbs for our priesthood. These are verbs for our prayer life. These are verbs for our daily walk as believers. These are not verbs for the unbeliever to get saved. For the unbeliever to get saved, he needs to believe. The only verb the unbeliever can do is believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You know, your prayer life as an unbeliever, I was not listening, okay? Or as a carnal believer, God's just waiting for your confession so you're back in fellowship again. But for a believer in fellowship, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. And this isn't a name it and claim it prosperity theology because what's assumed in this is that you're saved and that you're in fellowship and you're walking according to the Word of God. You're not perverting things like the, the, faith, uh, the Word of Faith movement and uh, the prosperity gospel people. Say, well, I'm just going to ask and if God doesn't give me a Ferrari, then this verse is a lie and, uh, and prayer doesn't work. Well, were you asking by faith? What faith conviction did you have that in the will of God he was giving you a Ferrari today? Okay? Ask in faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. So if we ask, we have the request that we've received from him. Ask the request he's giving you to ask. Don't just ask what your own carnality wants to ask for. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Knock, and it will be opened. Anyway, everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. When you're in the will of God, these doors open. You know, God's not going to give you a snake if you're asking for a fish. But uh, this goes all the way down through verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? I mean, we have the basic understanding of how parents try to give good things to their children. Does, that, does nature teach us anything about what our Heavenly Father is like? We think our Heavenly Father is going to answer prayer in a way that we wouldn't even do with our earthly kids? Of course not. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, we spent a lot of time in this, and I would encourage you to go to those MP3s and, and learn the difference between being and becoming because it's so remarkable that God becomes something, okay? God becomes the rewarder. Anytime God becomes something, that should grab our attention. 
Why is God becoming that? He's becoming that for a reason. All right. Then point three. Old Testament saints died in faith, waiting for the fulfillment of promise. We look at verse 13, and we look at verse 39, and we see some of these statements. Verse 13 says, all these died in faith. Remember this chapter, as we went through it, this chapter had some narrative descriptions of Old Testament heroes and how they applied faith and what was going on. But then there's these interspersed between those episodes are these editorial comments, these testimonies by the Holy Spirit uh, that give you the divine commentary on, on what was happening. And so I'm really in this review kind of focusing on this, these interspersed divine commentaries like verse 6 was one of those. Because after we dealt with Abel and Enoch, we have the divine commentary, without faith it is impossible to please him. And that's, that's the Holy Spirit inspiring scripture here to, to, uh, to illustrate what these narratives are, uh, are teaching. Likewise, once we get through Noah and Abraham and Sarah, we have a summary statement that's made in verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. And this becomes interesting for us. All right, so... um, Where is, yeah, verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. Now, earlier we were told they did receive the promises. Earlier we were told that he lived as an alien and he received a promise and and his son was born. So isn't that receiving a promise? So certain blessings in time were received but other blessings in time were not received. For example, he was looking for a city. City never showed up. City still hasn't shown up. The, the heavenly Jerusalem doesn't descend till after the millennium. The future kingdom, the future, of course, the kingdom comes when Jesus comes, but the city doesn't make it till Revelation 21, till after the millennial kingdom, till after this earth is destroyed. So how come some promises come early and some never come, meaning They haven't come yet, but they're still on the way. Why? Because God promised them. They're still on the way. And so the ones that they die, they die in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, having welcomed them from a distance, in this case a time distance, realizing, you know what? It's not going to happen in my lifetime. It's like the rapture of the church. I want the rapture of the church to happen today. But that's only because I'm disappointed it didn't happen yesterday. And if it doesn't happen today, my disappointment will hope that the rapture comes tomorrow. But what happens if it never does come in my lifetime? It can come in my children's lifetime after I'm gone. It's still a promise. It's still going to happen because God said it was going to happen. We live under these issues of imminency and that's a blessing. All right. So having confessed that there were strangers and aliens on the earth. And those who say such things make it clear they're seeking a country of their own. So it's curious now to die in faith and not receive the promise. 
And imagine if you're a Jew in the Old Testament, you have a whole canon of Scripture. You've got Hebrew Scriptures, okay? What we would call uh, 39 Old Testament books, okay? And they would say 24 Old Testament books because they number them differently. But they have the same Bible we do, it's just they only have the Old Testament portion of it. And they've got a lot of unrealized promises. And especially for those that have rejected Jesus as the Christ, they've got even more unfulfilled promises. They really don't because Jesus fulfilled those promises, okay? But so much is still future. The kingdom isn't here yet. The throne of David is not yet here. In fact, if it wasn't for us, they could not have their fulfillment. When you look at the end of the chapter, it says in verse 39, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. So every Old Testament saint, there's no more living Old Testament saints in the world today. They're all gone. They're all dead and buried. And the kingdom's not here yet. So does this mean that the Bible let them down? God was a liar? The prophecy doesn't work? What does it mean? It means we're still waiting. And by the way, they're going to have to be resurrected to enjoy what God has promised them. God is the God of the living, not the dead. And then it says... Because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect or they would not be completed. And so the rejection of the Christ and his crucifixion and the hardness of heart for Israel and all these things that we view as being uh, unfortunate or a problem are actually very fortunate and very much uh, a glory to God that his plan encompassed that of course, his foreknowledge knew all about that, and that he called out a bride for his son, a royal family, a church age, in which we are not them. But he can still fulfill his promises to them, and we get to be a part of how he does that. We, identified with Christ, get to function in Christ as Christ is their mediator there, uh, when he ministers, their new covenant. We, in Christ, get to be a part of that ministry and function in that way. So really, these verses are marvelous, not only to teach faith and to teach the waiting of promises, and how long do we have to wait? Say, well, Abraham waited 100 years before he birthed Isaac, but now he's waited 4,000 years for the city that he was looking for which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham's still waiting to see that city. It hadn't come yet. So waiting for the fulfillment of promise and functioning as mortal beings in this earth, operating within time, and yet thinking in eternal context. That's our blessing. That's our joy. And we are uniquely suited to do this better than any Old Testament saint ever could. Because now we have two testaments. We have a Greek canon added to our Hebrew canon. And we have a positional truth reality seated at the right hand of the Father. And we already have the down payment of the kingdom glory in terms of the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us. We have a deposit, the earnest money of our inheritance. And so all these things are marvelous. When we pay attention to the us and they distinction, it is a very clear distinction between New Testament and Old Testament saints. 
And if you encounter people that blur those, if you have somebody that dares tell you that Israel was the Old Testament church, or that the church is New Testament Israel, if they've bought into the replacement theology, just stop them. Bring them here. To me, this is a very, uh, this is a profound verse. It's a marvelous verse because it lays it out as us and them. And they still have a future. They're not going to become us. God made promises to them. And God will fulfill His promises to them. Placing their resurrection destiny in contingent relationship to our resurrection destiny. It's a contingent relationship. They will be resurrected. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, Noah, Job, all of them, they're going to be resurrected after we're resurrected. Rapture comes first. The very first resurrection was Jesus. The next one will be His bride. It's only after that that Old Testament saints receive their resurrection, their glories, their blessings, their rewards, their payback. So their resurrection destiny is in contingent relationship to our resurrection destiny. You know, if you really think it through, just as a concept, this requires a pre-tribulational rapture. Because, in, because the tribulation is God's dealings with the Jewish people to prepare them for their kingdom glory, to prepare them for their resurrection destiny. And in order to do that, the bride must already be complete. The bride must already be in our resurrection destiny because apart from us, they cannot be made perfect. And again, that's Hebrews 11.40. God has provided something better for us. We are not them. We have something better. And it's tragic the way that replacement theology tries to steal Israel's blessings when we have something better. Apart from us, they would not be made perfect. The perfection of Israel requires the perfection of the church. It's a prerequisite. Nevertheless, on a practical basis, they're just believers living their lives, walking by faith. You know what we are? We're believers living our lives, walking by faith. Okay? You know, and down at the granular level, down at, at just the, the, the individual basis, it's, it's just learning the Word of God and making applications, walking by faith. That has not changed, even though the parameters surrounding it are entirely different. The fourth thing I want to get out of this, halfway through, how are we doing on time? All right. Down to verse 27. Moses' faith equipped him to see the unseen. Hebrews 11, 27. The expression, yet once more. Get my Bible back up here. I feel like I'm on an airplane. And my left ear... And no matter what I do, I can yawn, I can pop, I can drink. Happened last week also, two weeks in a row now. All right. Can you guys tell my voice weird? Makes no difference? 
All right, then I'll ignore it. Um, it just sounds weird to me. All right. By faith. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Faith equips any believer. Church age, Old Testament, doesn't matter the denomination or doesn't matter the, uh, the dispensation, I should say. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is our spiritual eyes. Faith is what allows a born-again believer to operate within the invisible realm of God. And that's always been the case. Old Testament Gentiles, Old Testament Jews, New Testament church. When we walk by faith, not by sight, that means that we are focused on the invisible realm, not the visible realm. And this is what Moses was doing. He left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king. He endured as seeing him who is unseen. And this is what we should be doing. Again, Hebrews 11, 1. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Remember Hebrews 11, 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay? When you're walking by faith, you can see the invisible. And, and we do so more and more as we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should get to the point that we, it's the only thing we use. We stop looking at this world with our earthly eyes, okay? At least as far as our testing circumstances and our work assignments are concerned. I still recommend you drive with your earthly eyes open, okay? I'm driving Lydia down the road. My earthly eyes are open. But for the tests of life and for the work assignments and for our spiritual function, it's always the spiritual eyes. Never the physical eyes. Never the because then you get, in, you get intimidated. You get absolutely intimidated if you look at it in, in earthly terms. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Well, how are you going to even see that race without your faith eyes without your spiritual eyes being open because they don't they don't put yard signs in your neighbor's yard that tell you about your spiritual assignments you got to have your faith eyes open to run with endurance the race that's set before you fixing your eyes on jesus the author perfecter of faith keep your eyes fixed on him he's running the race right there with you you're yoked to him so uh you want to run with race Keep your eyes on Him. That has to be your spiritual eyes, though, walking by faith, not by sight. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him. So He's the source and He's also the perfecter. Thank God for that. Because what perfects our faith? Testing, conflict, undeserved suffering, hardships. Those are the circumstances that perfect our faith. And Jesus is the one doing it. Jesus is the one that says, hey, let's run through the valley of the shadow of death. And you say, oh, I don't want to go there. Well, Scripture says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, right? I'm going to go where He goes. I'm walking with Him. I'm running with Him. My eyes are fixed on Him. All right, Lord, we're going there, we're going there. Let's, let's see what happens next. This is what perfects our faith. He's the author of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. And so Moses did this, David did this, Daniel did this. I mean, any Old Testament believer, anybody that's featured in Hebrews 11 was walking by faith. That's why they're in this chapter. Rahab told her lies. 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, okay? Walking by faith. And so believers today should follow Moses' example, keeping our eyes on the unseen, paying attention to the things above. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. Those aren't with your physical eyes, those are with your spiritual eyes, the, the eyes of faith. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's the first consideration. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. It's your spiritual eyes that puts your testing in, in perspective. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. But if you don't have your eyes of faith activated, you'll never see this. Your momentary light affliction is going to appear to be forever and heavy and terrible and non-productive and useless and a waste of time. But your, your spiritual eyes by faith says it's momentary, it's light, and it's productive. It's glorifying to my Savior, so I'd, I'll happily endure it. In fact, my Savior's worth more glory than I want to endure, so I'll just endure as much as He assigns me. When we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen, keep looking at the things you can't see. Keep your spiritual eyes open looking at the unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal. So this health test you're going through, is that an eternal health test? Of course not. It's a finite body. This body is temporary. This body is dying away. This body is mortal. So this health test is not eternal. Quit fixing your eyes on it. What is eternal is the glory you're producing as you glorify your Savior through this health test. As you learn the lessons of humility, as you testify to God's faithfulness. The glory that you're producing in this affliction is eternal. So fix your eyes there. Colossians 3, where we were last hour, verses 1 and 2. If you've been raised up with Christ, and you have been, you're a believer, right? If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Now, Moses was able to do this. How much better can we do this? Moses was not dead with his life hidden with Christ in God. You and I are dead with our life hidden with Christ in God because you and I have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into personal union with Jesus Christ. Moses was not. David was not. No Old Testament believer was. No Old Testament believer was positionally dead in Christ. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. It's only us in the church age. And so, but he had spiritual eyes to see who was unseen. We have spiritual eyes to see who are unseen and so much more. Seated at the right hand of God. And Hebrews 12, which we just read a minute ago. The blessings that we have in walking by faith. Point five. Every believer has works prepared beforehand that we should complete in the running of our race. All right, so points one through four, we're all from chapter 11. For points five and six, we're now looking at chapter 12. Running with endurance, the race that's set before us. And uh, we each have our race, and we don't know. Thankfully, he, uh, he doesn't tell us 
the race too far ahead of time. We get to run this race one day at a time. See, my race, uh, you know, I, I can look back and see where I've come from, and then I can forget about it and keep looking forward, running with endurance this race. Okay? Did I know all the stuff all those years ago? That I didn't know? Of course not. You know how intimidating that would be? I would have run for the hills. You know, my earthly eyes would have said, I'm not qualified for that. Are you kidding? How, how are we going to do any of that? And yet here we are. So um, this is the race that's set before us. And it was prepared long before we were ever around. And God's not up there in heaven just kind of, you know, scratching his head and saying, um, all right, there's a, here's a believer. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty impressed with him. I think uh, he's, 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 he's all right. He's doing well. Let me, uh, let me give him this race here that he can handle. Let me give him this race here that he's earned and deserved. Let me, uh, you, know, you know what, and this other believer, he's, he's kind of been a bit faithless. He's kind of drifted. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him this other race over here that's really more pathetic because that's where he is. You know, God doesn't do that. He's not riding new races every day. Every one of these races was written as a part of the divine decrees before the foundation of the earth. In the beginning, before anything, when God issued His decree, when He issued His plan, when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in perfect agreement, these works were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's Ephesians 2.10. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Before you were saved, before you were born, before the planet ever existed, the mind of God put His plan into effect, and he, that's the only plan He has. There is no plan B. God has only plan A. Holy Spirit and, and God the Son are in perfect agreement. The Father proposed it. The Son and Holy Spirit concurred. That's the plan they put into effect. And it included your race, my race. Included every, every twist, every turn, every obstacle, things to climb over, things to climb under, tunnels to dig through, every, every, uh, every race, ropes to climb, whatever it may be. Okay? You watch those American gladiator shows, they, they, uh, they look tiring, you know? <laughs> the sheriff's officers I worked with, probably the most physically fit human being I've ever met in my life, and uh, he had trained to be a Navy SEAL. He uh, did not make it through Navy SEAL training, but he worked at Travis County Sheriff's Department. He was my training officer, most physically fit human being I've ever personally met and shaken hands with. And he was trying to do one of those uh, American Gladiator tryouts and shows and, and things. And I said, well, I'll watch you. <laughs> But think about it, this race that's set beforehand and how faithful is our God to bring us through these things. Acts 13.36 David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. He's not the fulfillment of the prophecy that your Holy One will not undergo decay. That's speaking about the son of David, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
David is not the subject of that prophecy, as is evident by the fact that he died, was buried, and decayed. And uh, Luke is making this point pretty obviously in, uh, in Acts. Luke's recording it. Uh, Paul's preaching it. But, but key on this phrase, David after he served the purpose of God in his own generation. That's the race. That's the race. Your generation, from the moment of your salvation to the moment of your physical death, when you're born again and when you depart, that's your race. And uh, there's a purpose for you. You've got a life purpose. Everybody does. And there'll be different phases. There'll be different stages, you know. You have a phase of your life of childhood and a phase, an adult phase and a married phase and a, maybe a widowed phase. Or, you know, and there's just other things that happen. There'll be an old age phase. I mean, rapture pending. The, uh, we have different phases, like there's different, you know, laps of a, of a racetrack. There's different um, courses, Okay, there's the, the Washington phase of my test. There's the Alabama phase, which I try not to think about. There's Germany, there's, there's Texas, okay? And, and these are all different laps of, of my race. But when I serve the purpose of God in my generation and fall asleep and undergo decay, then that's when my, my, my course is finished. That's true for all of us. And until he brings us to that finish line, we're still forward-looking and running with endurance. We still have our eyes fixed on him. And we don't just kick back and say, well, 6,000 sermons, that's good enough. Let's just rest on some laurels and call it good. God the Father is terribly disappointed because he says, you've got 30 more years in front of you. 6,000, are you kidding me? I designed you for 15,000. What are you doing? And then I stand before the, the judgment seat of Christ and I hear you wicked, lazy slave. I didn't design you for 6,000 messages. Who do you think you are? Okay, you see why you got to keep looking forward? 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. This is Paul's last will and testament. He's writing 2 Timothy hoping that it gets to Timothy in time and that Timothy will arrive before he's executed. He says, come quickly. He wants Timothy to come and be with him before the end. It's been revealed to him that this is his physical death that's going to happen. This is an imprisonment that he will not be released from in freedom. So I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only me, but all who have loved his appearing. This crown of righteousness. If you've loved his appearing, if you're living daily in the anticipation of the trumpet, every day you're loving his imminent appearing. This is one of the easiest crowns that you can win in the church age. Hebrews 12.1, run with endurance the race that's set before you. How sad to consider the race over when it's not yet complete. Philippians 3.13 and 14, this is forgetting what lies behind. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And you see it sometimes in the Olympics and you see runners that think they've got it in the bag and then they kind of start to showboat or they go, they, they, uh, and then they trip and they fall and somebody else comes from behind and beats them. I love those video clips. I laugh at, you know, at those video clips. Don't know why. Probably just a twisted sense of humor. But 
I laugh because it's hilarious in human terms. It's also useful in spiritual terms to teach this doctrine. Forget what lies behind. Reach forward. Keep pressing on. Don't stop pressing on until you're through the finish line. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. A press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, it is a goal. It is a prize. You must press on. It's not a participation trophy. Slugs don't get it. Okay? And if you're looking back, you're not reaching forward. You're defying the plan of God. We've got to run with endurance the race that's set before us. Finally, we have this powerful description of the church of the firstborn. This view here of heaven that's glimpsed in Roman in Hebrews 12, 23. Let me back up a little bit. Oh, this was critical. We're not Old Testament saints. Remember us versus them? Okay? They came out of Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai. They were given Mosaic Law. They stood in a mountain with fire and smoke and trembling and fear. That's not our mountain. We have an entirely different position, an entirely different estate. And so uh, you'll notice verse 18 says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into a blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. That's not us. That's not our salvation experience. That's not our Christian walk experience. That's not our priestly function. That was Israel. That was them back then. So 18, 19, 20, 21... So terrible was the sight, Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So when you read those verses, that was them and that was then. Then we get to verse 22 and following, and this is us and this is now. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. See, we have a heavenly reality. Israel's an earthly people. We're a heavenly people. So Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, what a, what a position to have. And we're there because we're baptized in the union with Jesus Christ. We are at the right hand of God the Father. We are in the heavenly places right here, right now. To a myriad of angels in the general assembly. I think the myriads of angels, general assembly, that goes together in the Greek. That's linked together as the second object of the you have come to. To myriads of angels of the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's the bride of Christ. That's us. The church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. When the roll is called up yonder, I'm already there. Okay? We've all been there since this book got written. And to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Because guess what? When we get to heaven, we're not staying there forever. When he comes back, we're coming back. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand only until 
I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he stretches forth his scepter and says, go, rule in the midst of your enemies. And so there is coming a day when Jesus is coming back and we'll be with him. And he will rule this world with a rod of iron. We will be with him because thus we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, centers on what he functions in when he comes back at second advent into the sprinkled blood, which has not yet been sprinkled on Israel, the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So we have this marvelous description here, and it's a heavenly view, and it's a present positional reality, which we're learning relates to our present experiential realization. We should live our lives in light of this reality. The church of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, it's a marvelous description for the body of Christ. Believers baptized in a union with the firstborn of all creation. Remember Colossians 1.15 is the firstborn of all creation. And who are we? We're in Christ. Romans 8.29 Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. You and I are His heavenly brethren. He is the firstborn. We are baptized in the union with the firstborn. Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Remember this? Adam was created in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. If you didn't get that in, in the Colossians series, you're going to get it again because we've got Genesis coming up. Adam and Eve created in the image of God. But Jesus is the image of God. The firstborn of all creation. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus was the first to be resurrected on Easter Sunday, 33 AD. The church will be next. Israel and Gentiles, they don't get resurrected until after the tribulation. But the church is next. So the rapture of the church could even be today. Hebrews 1.6, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. The millennial kingdom will feature angelic, visible angelic worship. And Hebrews 12, 23, the church of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven. What a description. And here we are. We are a heavenly people. I trust that we're making a heavenly impact, an earthly impact. Okay? All right, well, we'll come back next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. We'll give a review on chapter 13. You will also have notes available to you because I had six points for these two chapters. I've got seven points for, uh, for next week. But uh, seven points to review 25 verses of Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 is where it gets practical. Hebrews 13 is he closes the theological treatise that is 1 through 12 and then he attaches a, uh, a personal note to, to the recipients of uh, how they should function as a church. It gets very personal for a church to operate. And so we want to glean those principles as well here at Austin Bible Church. Father, I thank you for truth. I thank you for your faithfulness and the blessing we have to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you for your son. I thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
I thank you, Father, that you become the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. And Father, uh, open our eyes to see these realities so that we can uh, function as you've designed. We want to run with endurance. We want to achieve what you have called us for. And we're only going to do that by faith in the way that you have prescribed. So I thank you for your truth and thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you and praise you, Father. In this day that we're waiting for, there is coming a day. And uh, as much as we want it to be today, Father, we know that you are not slow about your promise, but you are patient. So help us to live daily hoping it's our last. Live daily anticipating our Savior. Might Maranatha be our daily cry. We thank you and praise you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.